2: Hey listeners, first a special thank you to my patrons who are supporting the show on a monthly basis in exchange for some extra content and behind the scenes updates. If you find value in this show, please consider joining this great group of people. Just check out the link in the description or go to patreon.com forward slash Liverboard sailing podcast and there will be some bonus content from today's episode as well. A couple of quick things before we get started. First, if you haven't had a chance to leave a rating or review of this podcast on your podcast app, I would love it if you can do that, especially if you listen on Spotify as I am currently 11 ratings away from 100, so I would appreciate your help getting me there. Secondly, a reminder that if you are looking to get some sailing experience in the Caribbean this winter, My friends Darren and Amanda on Outer Passage are running some really nice and very reasonably priced trips in warmer latitudes, so check them out at outer-passage.com, or click on the link in the description, and mention that you are a friend of the podcast for a nice 10% off. Okay, now on with the show. Here's what's coming up next.
1: Just like, nobody's gonna ring a bell and say, now's the time to go, or you know enough, right? You're never going to know enough, and you're never going to be 100% ready to go. You've just got to go. The rest you'll figure out as you go, you know?
2: Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week we are diving into family cruising as I chat with Chris from Sailing With Six. Chris and his wife Shauna are pursuing a life less ordinary with their four kids while sailing the world. We talk about how they collectively learned to sail and what it was like buying a boat in Mexico. And, spoiler alert, it was not as easy as you might think. Chris also has some reassuring words for anyone who is thinking about sailing with kids. Now, here is my chat with Chris. Your family is on a quest to pursue a lifeless ordinary, so let's talk about this. Why is this important to you?
1: We're really passionate about thinking outside of the box or encouraging other people to think outside of the box. Um, you know, suburbia plays a role in this world. Um, but it's not for us and that's okay. It is for other people. Um, definitely, but, but it's, it's not for us. And for many years, we sort of lived in a great house. It was close to the beach. It was wasn't a mansion, but it wasn't small. It was, yeah, you know, a solid house that we brought our four kids up in. And for a few years, we sort of spoke. Shona and I spoke, and and we, you know, I reckon we could we could live smaller than this and simplify things. And it was about the time where the minimalist move was 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 coming out. And ultimately, we got. Almost sick of talking about it and went, you know, let's put our money where our mouth is and and let's start taking some steps into um, perhaps the less ordinary or the the road less traveled. So, that's where it started. Um, We'd always had a a passion for the ocean and adventure, but we hadn't done a great deal of sailing at all. Um, But it really appealed to us. In fact, we first learned to sail when Pip, our youngest, was six weeks old and she's now seven. Um, but we learned as a family and that sort of put us in good stead because we almost, well, we didn't know any different as to, you know, how to sail a boat. We've always had kids on board and we've always had to come together as a team. And anyway, in hindsight, that was probably a good thing. So don't be scared. Don't be scared about starting with young kids as long as you, if they're really young, put a jacket on them and tie them on. Otherwise you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> that's my, my two cents, but, um, yeah, that, that's sort of where it started. and. You know, did we back on the Gold Coast, you know, when we were in that house, did we think we would sail to the other side of the world? Uh, probably not, but, but here we are, right? This is sort of one step in front of the other or one foot in front of the other, rather. And, um, here we are
2: yeah well that's how it starts you know you get a great idea and then you build on it and rarely do you know the final goal and then you still don't know where where this adventure might take you which is kind of the the fun part of it because if you live in a house you know you have your so-called normal land life and you know you can pretty well see where it's going you stay in the same job kids go to schools kids go to hobbies and you know 10 years go by and you know what did we do again?
1: yeah it's so true and it's um sort of as 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 we're talking and, re- and reflecting it 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 does get momentum too you don't realize it but you are becoming more and more removed from the quote unquote ordinary you just don't realize it until you step back in for a moment and go oh wow <laughs> you know 99% of the time when we're living you know we're living on anchor or at sea. And so, you know, things like making your own water and, you know, creating your own power and jumping in your dinghy as opposed to your car, that's normal every day for us. And and that's just a, a couple of examples. There's much, much, much more to it than that. But, yeah, you just become further removed from an ordinary life um, than you realize, which is great. We We just feel amazingly blessed to be able to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, this lifestyle is certainly full of new things and exciting things and adventure and, you know, misfortunes and who knows what. And you're obviously doing all this with four kids. So I'm wondering, what do you hope that this experience or I guess this lifestyle almost will teach your kids uh, in the end, you know, 10 years from now when they grew up on a boat traveling the world?
1: Yeah, I think we're making our own bed, aren't we? Time will tell. Um... Shona is it's like a social experiment. Um, I mean, it's not, but it kind of is. Yeah, who knows in 10 years? So current ages of the children are 12 through to seven. So, you know, we're in that double digit sort of area. So in 10 years, they're going to be in their twenties and goodness knows where they're going to be in the world, but we're going to have to, uh, try and keep up with them, uh, which I look forward to doing and, uh, and, who knows where they'll be? Uh, naturally they've got their own personalities and interests and they're all unique in their own right. So who knows? But as far as what, what the lifestyle is teaching them, culture is massive. Hey, and it's one of those things that you can read about it in a book, but it's a completely different thing to experience it. You know, you know culture is the people. Um, so to meet different people around the world is. Is a, a, a real blessing, and and that that learning and that experience, you know, for us as adults is mind blowing. Let alone as children. If anything, at times we need to remind the kids that this isn't normal, and try and bring in a wee bit of perspective. Sometimes you'll hear me say, "Quick, tuck your shirt in, pull your socks up, and put your hat on." Right? I've never heard that terminology from a School perspective perspective is key, uh, for the kids as far as, um, just reminding them of where we are. And, uh, you know, for argument's sake, we're in Canada and for Canadians, that's totally normal for us. This is the other side of the world. And so it's really, really cool to to be here. But at the same time, we are human and we suffer from something that I call the white beach syndrome, uh, which is ultimately complacency. Where, you know, you 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 go right? We're going to go sailing. We're we're going to go and find that crystal clear water and that that remote atoll with a couple of palm trees on it, and it's going to be yeah, amazing in your mind's eye, right? And then uh, you get there, and it is amazing. And then you wake up the next morning, and it's still there, and you think, oh well, that's cool. Maybe we should sail and go and explore another place. And, uh, you find that it's another crystal clear water atoll with white sandy beach. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. And then you do that for a few days and that turns into weeks and, and maybe months and you become complacent. And that, 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 that once white sandy beach atoll that, you know, was your drive has become the normal. And that complacency slips in and so we're always talking about making sure that we're not doing the white sandy beach thing um in our family so it's important to take heed and 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 be thankful for where we are and what we're doing yeah
2: absolutely those are some really good uh thoughts on that and obviously you know you said the kids are now between seven and twelve so when you started a few years ago they were still fairly young but you know not too young to have a say. So how did you know that the kids would be okay with this lifestyle? Or did you know, was it a bit of a gamble like, well, let's give it a go, see what they think?
1: Yeah, no, it's a a great question. I think at the age that they were when we pushed off, so they were four through to nine. I think at that age, they really do Toe the line of of the parents. Um, And that maybe sounds a wee bit harsh, but what I mean by that is if we're excited and we're pumped by doing something and we are, you know, bringing them on that journey and sharing, you know, what we think it's going to look like from an adventure perspective with them, and then they naturally feed off that as well. Um, So, There was never any sort of sticky moments where we're like, "Oh, gee, one of them might not like it." No, as a family, we're like, "Mate, this sounds like an adventure. Let's get after it." And that was ultimately led by Shona and I, and the kids bought into it. And it was—it just was a mute point largely. It uh, was—it was somewhat easy. Yeah, there was no, you know, dragging of heels or anything. Oh, that's
2: amazing! And I can't imagine a kid who would say no to this kind of adventure. Like, yeah, we're gonna take you out of school and we're gonna go travel.
1: Well, yeah. The, the, the interesting thing uh, is is that there wasn't uh, a school to take them out of. So our our children have always been homeschooled. Um, so I guess that was one part that that made the transition from land to water a bit smoother. That there was no sort of unplugging from a school system. Um, it was it was yeah. It was taking what you're already doing and putting it in another space, being a floating home as opposed to a land home and, and life continuing. Yeah,
2: exactly. Well, that homeschooling or boat schooling, I guess, now is an interesting point as well and something I know very little about. But are you both, you and Shauna doing teaching? Are you both teachers?
1: Uh, one would argue I do the physical education side of the teaching and Shona does the, uh, the, the, the theory. Uh, that's kind of how it works. Not really, but, but it kind of is at the same time. Yeah, we on a on a on a normal day, uh, where we are at anchor, we've arrived at our destination. Uh, it'll be school and work in the morning. I'm working remotely, so there'll be a few hours of school and work, and then it'll be playing and adventuring and exploring where we are in the afternoon. So that's sort of how it works. So whilst I'm working, Shona champions the. The curriculum and the the education side of things for the for the four kids, and that's I know I, you know for some people, that could be one of their greatest concerns of sorts of you know what about educating the kids? And I would encourage those those parents to say, "You're more clever than you think, um and it's not as hard as you think. There's amazing material out there these days. The homeschool community is larger than you think. Uh, if anything, you need to actually say no to opting into certain social events or, or or whatever it may be, just because there is so much of it out there, both from a support sp- a perspective and a community point, uh, perspective as well. So, yeah, homeschool is totally doable. Don't 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 be scared of it. One would argue it's all we know, and that's a fair comment. Um, But Shona and I both went to a a normal school and, and, you know, so we kind of know how they work. But, yeah, uh, it's not hard. There is support there. It's okay. (laughs) School goes on.
2: Exactly. Yeah, learning goes on no matter where you are. But I'm curious, though, what does, if anything, what does the Australian school system require from you in terms of do you need to prove something like, yes, they passed a certain level of, knowledge or how does that work? Do they have any requirements for you?
1: As a, as a, I'm going to put a disclaimer in at this point. Um, that's definitely more of a question for Shona. It's a strength of hers and it is mine. But largely, uh, there's no hard and fast requirements from the Australian Education Department. Now, I think where the rubber will meet the road is in the event of them uh, going back to a school or going to a school, there'll need to be some sort of a Entrance exam to see where they're at compared to other children. And, and that's okay with us. Um, we've got no concerns. Uh, and, and by the way, for what it's worth, for those who are listening, you know, if one of our kids was to say, look, I really want to go and, and try school. We're not against that. We're not holding them away from that. Sometimes we have that discussion. Yeah, maybe it's time. And so far it's been, no, no, we're not. Not keen on on going down that road, so that's that's fine at the moment. But but as they get older that might change. But in saying that I know I've gone away from my key point, but I'll come back. In saying that, as the kids get older, they're owning their own education more. Like Bell's who's sitting next to me right now working on her maths, I haven't asked her to do her maths today. She knows that it's just part of what she needs to do. And so, you know, it's a tick in the box for the day and, and you know, we're learning and progressing and And the same can be said for Finn too, who's at eleven. He's owning his own education. He's unaware of what needs to be done. Doesn't need to be told. Um, Sure, we give direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But once that direction has been given for you know a few weeks or a month, then they're away. So coming back to the key point, uh, the Australian education system. There's no hard and fast rules. We've met other, many other. Uh, sailing families from all around the world and it, and it can, the, the, the range of how, uh, education on their boat or in their floating home works is, is a huge variance. Um, right the way from what you call unschooling to, you know, we're still catching up with, with the teacher from the school that we left on a regular basis. And, you know, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just, you know, what works for for the the kids and the family and and the season in which they're in, you know. And that goes right the way down to how often you do it too, not just what, what curriculum you're using, but rather, you know, are you doing school every day? Do you do weekends or do you have holidays? And my answer to that is do what you want as long as you're getting the outcome. So for us... You know, we don't necessarily subscribe to holidays, you know, that's not how we do it but I know other families on the water have. But we, uh, <laughs> we, if the weather's really nice, we do a little bit of school and lots of adventuring and exploring. When the weather's rubbish, uh, we do lots of school, all right? That's kind of how it works in our world and so, with that, you get blocks of some really intense school and you get some gaps where there's not that much but it all sort of evens out and that's you know we've been at sea for three years now and yeah it's working for us
2: yeah it's such an interesting take on education like you said the kids take kind of responsibility over their own education once they get a little bit older so it's not that you go to school and that's where you educate yourself or you get educated but you can you know take the initiative and do your own learning which I think is probably a little bit healthier attitude, you know, once you're an adult looking into that, having that initiative to actually take on that learning. So how many countries have you been to now since you left? Obviously obviously you started in Australia and then a little bit New Zealand and then flew to Mexico.
1: Yeah, we, um, I think we're at 11. Uh, It's not something that, I don't know why I know that answer. It's not something that I normally look at. Oh, I had to fill it out on a form recently. That's the only reason I know. <laughs> Somebody said, "How many countries have you been to in the last five years?" And I was like, "I don't know. Eleven is the answer." Uh, so a few of those are in the South Pacific, and uh, and the rest are through s- the Americas, um, all all via sailboat. Albeit, yes, there was a flight in there from from New Zealand up to uh, up to the US. But uh, yeah, I feel very blessed to be able to do that.
2: I watched your recent video where you were getting some diesel at a fuel dock, I think in Mexico, and the people wanted all sorts of paperwork, like the temporary import permit and boat just to get diesel. So this got me thinking, uh, which country has had the most cumbersome red tape or bureaucracy that you've faced so far?
1: Mexico has some very unique ways of doing things, which is what you're referring to there. Uh, And common sense doesn't always prevail, but you've just got to roll with it and go, okay. But as far as the most cumbersome country to come into on a sailing boat, uh, for us, based on our passports, without a doubt, is the US. Uh, You can't sail into the US on a sailboat without having a, 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 a visa, at least for the first time. Uh, whereas any other country we've sailed to, it's been, it's been fine. Um, so to give that a wee bit more context, and I won't dwell here for too long, we can fly into the US. We can get a commercial vessel into the US. We can walk across the border into the US. Not a problem. We just can't, just can't arrive for the first time on a private vessel being a sailboat. Um, so we are on something called an Esther. Um, which is a visa waiver for the U.S. When we go in, we've, for the to start our 90 days, which is what you get on this program, we've got to go in on an approved carrier. So uh, we had to fly into the U.S. and say, hello, we're here, this is us. And they went, oh, hello. And then we were there for a couple of days and we flew back to, in this instance, Mexico and went, okay, well, now we're back home. And then we waited for a weather window and then we sailed into the U.S. and they said, oh, welcome. Um, because you've been here before and you've started your 90 days, not a problem. And we went, great, thumbs up. But I have to say, we weren't 100% sure if that was going to work and if they had to put us back out to sea, that would have been a very interesting scenario. But it does work. The Esther scenario of what I just explained is quite unique, but it works. So, the U.S. has the most bureaucracy.
2: Yeah, the U.S. is interesting. Uh, That was literally... The main reason why I wanted to get a Canadian passport because going, even going through land, crossing the border from Canada to the US with my Finnish passport, I would have to go into the office for like half an hour and, you know, they'd be wondering, looking at it, what to do. So, yeah, once I got my Canadian passport, it's like, wow, I feel like I'm cheating. Like, this is too easy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we've got to undo that soon because um, we do plan to go back down the east coast of the U.S. So we'll see how it unravels. You just sort of got to live in surrender with that one and it is what it is.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the U.S. is not necessarily an easy country for for non-Americans, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and that's reflected in the amount of um, foreign vessels you don't see on the east coast in particular. Um, but, anyway, it is it is what it is and it's all part of what makes it an adventure at the end of the day. But, yeah, red tape. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: So you had a fair bit of experience with boats and, and sailing before you set off on this sort of longer term cruising adventure And I'm wondering, you know, having owned different boats even before you left on this grand adventure, was there anything that you still wish you had known about before you left?
1: Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, fall on sword a wee bit. Um, we didn't have heaps of experience before we left. Um, we, we, uh, kind of learned by doing. And so we had bought a little Hunter 23 that all six of us would squeeze on. I think the hole underneath, the hole down below turned into a bid and we would just sort of fall where we fell. You know, that's where it all started. was <laughs> hilarious, but, you know, we'd be out there for two or three days at a time just sort of figuring out how a mainsail and a headsail worked. And that was poking around in a place called Moreton Bay um, between the Gold Coast and Brisbane on the east coast of Australia. And, yeah, we we... Got stuff wrong and learned from it, and uh, and then we went from there to a twenty six footer that had like a Ferling Genoa and a diesel engine, and uh, learned a bit more from there. And we had that for uh, uh, not very long at all, and then we went and bought a fifty one footer and went, and we were scared of it for a long time because uh, it was so big. Uh, at least that's how it felt. Um, And uh, so we we didn't know heaps. We'd been around the ocean plenty, uh, whether it had been sort of surfing or kiting. I've always had some form of a boat, um, but not necessarily sailing boats. Um, So a lot of it we've learned as we've gone. Um, uh, So is there something that I wish I had known more about before I left or everything? Um, (laughs) everything to do with moving parts on a vessel. You have to be part mechanic, part engineer, electrician, cook, fiberglasser. You know, there's nobody else out here that can do that stuff. And you have to have, or it's in your best interests to know a little bit about everything. And, you know, praise the Lord. We live in a a day and time where things like Google and YouTube exist because they help a lot you know hats off to the people that in yesteryear uh, didn't have such a a service at their fingertips and they still got it done you know they nailed it sometimes i feel like we're cheating a wee bit but that's okay um otherwise in all seriousness is there something that i wish we had a drilled down on more probably not really don't overthink it just like nobody's going to ring a bell and say now's the time to go or you know enough, right? You're never going to know enough. You're never going to be 100% ready to go. You've just got to go. The rest you'll figure out as you go, you know. That's that's my thoughts anyway. Some people might see that as foolish, but, you know, within reason, make sure your boat's seaworthy. Do some, some basic training like first aid training so when you're at sea, you, you know, something goes wrong, you know what's going on. Have the right gear on board. Invest into the important things like you know, ground tackle, your rigging and the, the the really important things, not just, you know, what colour your cushions are going to be or whatever it might be. Just to add a bit more context to my comment of go, you know, just, just tick a few boxes and then go.
2: No, that's such a good advice. I might need to play that on repeat for a while. Like, don't overthink it because I am most definitely overthinking it. And, you know, five years goes by, I'm still like, no, I'm not ready. I'm
1: not ready yet. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there will always be something. Hey, even when we kicked off from Australia, we were like, oh, let's just see how this goes. And by the way, we had our worst ocean passage out of Australia. But hey, we got it done. Tick the box, and that was our naivety as as to the the weather. I mean, we were never unsafe. It was just uncomfortable. You know, we were seven days at sea and it was 45 degrees off the nose uh, with some decent swell. So it was just uncomfortable. Um, but you learn. Yeah,
2: you did it. You, so you know better now. You learn
1: that on the beam or after the beam is the way to go. <laughs> That's what you learn. <laughs> well,
2: there you go. There you go. So, all right. So you have this 51 uh, foot sailboat that you've taken off the coast of Australia. At what point and why did you start thinking like it would be great to have a second hull there?
1: We, uh, like I said earlier, we had had a couple of smaller yachts and uh, we went and bare-boated. We we were getting some some traction in our minds with with doing this. And so, we thought let's get our hands on something that's perhaps a little more realistic as opposed to six people being on a 26-footer. So, we went and Bear chartered a 42-footer mono hull up at the Whit Sundays on the east coast of Australia, and uh, I think we were out there for ten days, and it it was really sort of solidified our thoughts. We thought, you know what, I reckon there'd be enough space, be comfortable enough, and yeah, you know, we can swim off the side, we can do all these things that we envisioned, and we think the kids will like it. So that was the that was the the sort of big green button had been pushed at that point, and we went, okay, cool, let's. um Let's start about making it happen. And we, at that point, were subscribing to minimalist thinking. We had already sold our big house and given away a lot of gear and sold some and threw the rest out or whatever we did. And so we'd already started, you know, minimalizing our, our, our life from a, a material perspective already. So... And we'd moved in, six of us, we'd moved into a two-bedroom. This is all around the same time as buying Tori, our 51-footer. We'd moved into a two-bedroom unit right near the beach um, to the surprise of some of our friends and family thinking, what are you doing? But it was sort of a step that we saw kind of worked. You know, we've gone from big house to small house where we had to remove a lot of material things to actually fit into it. And then the next step was moving from there, not into... A, you know a second home, but into our home home being uh, Toria, the fifty-one foot mono, and there was a whole another culling process that needed to happen from two bedroom unit to yacht. Uh, another one uh, like bikes, you know, uh, and other land things that were like, well, these have been cool on land, but they're not going to work with where we're going. So yeah, it kind of worked well, actually, in hindsight. Uh, and that wasn't because we had, you know, a master plan. It just kind of, we were blessed along the way.
2: Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's that's interesting. Well, I do want to talk about buying a boat across the world. So you bought the boat in Mexico, which, you know, Mexico is a pretty attractive place to buy a boat because then you're in nice cruising grounds right away. So a lot of people are thinking about that. And I watched one of your videos. It's an older one where you just are getting your new boat or then new boat. And you guys said in a video that the process was a little bit longer than anticipated or had more paperwork or that kind of pieces. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about that buying process there because you bought it, obviously you were in New Zealand or Australia at the time and buying a boat far, far from home. Did you use a broker or that or how did that all go, go down for you?
1: It was interesting, and I'm asking myself the question: if I had my time over, would I do it again? <laughs> and probably would. Technically, you can't buy a vessel out of Mexico, right? True story. Um, unless it's been imported there. So, Happy Days was a U.S. flagged vessel. She was an hour south of the U.S. border in a place called Puerto Panasco. So, in effect, our sale happened in the U.S. Cause it needed to and it, and the paperwork was all signed and we used, um, an agent in the US, not a broker, but an agent. But we reached out to, uh, a broker in Mexico to help facilitate the, the sale, uh, not to act as a broker, but just to, to help. I think the words that he called it was there's a Mexican dance with officials that needs to happen. And I have to say that none of that made me super comfortable about what we ultimately had to walk, walk through. So it can be done, but I wouldn't rush out there to do it. Um, if I had my time over, I'd much prefer to have purchased a vessel in the States, uh, particularly when you're that close already as opposed to, to a Mexico. So it, so yes, the vessel was located in Mexico, but the sale happened in the u.s there were there and there was a lot of time there that i was like how is this going to work i don't understand it and i just kept getting reassured by the people involved that oh no this is how it works and this is just mexico i keep in mind though let's just give this context when we went to mexico for the first time ever i hadn't seen the boat We flew into LA A mate lent us his van. We put all of our life's possessions in the back of this van, which is incidentally 27 pieces of gear, surfboards, you name it. And then we drove a couple of days, you know, through the desert (laughs) across the border into Mexico. And they just waved us through. Well, I was like, that can't be right. This is our first time across a land border. We've only ever gone in by sea to any sort of country. And they're always, you know, yellow flag up, stamping passports. You've got quarantine, you've got biosecurity, customs, you name it. We just drove into Mexico, had no reception on my phone. And I'm freaking out going, I think we need to turn back and like talk to the officials and get our passports stamped. I don't even know. How do they even know we're here? And eventually we just kept driving and and, and I, reception came back and I called my mate who had lent us the van and I said, we've just driven through the border and there's been nothing. And he said, welcome to Mexico, mate. And that is a really, really good way to put it, that they just do things differently and you have to trust the local process and it does work out in the end, albeit in my head, there are certainly some gray areas, which is why I'd question if I would do it again in Mexico, but it worked for us. Yeah. Well. Good luck. Yeah,
2: it, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is an interesting point because, you know, there's two things you don't really want to combine and that's large sum of money and a gray area. You know, when you're buying something expensive, you kind of want to know what's happening. What are the rules and are you following them and are you going to get fined or otherwise penalized for something Later on, <laughs> so I can understand. That sounds kind of stressful.
1: It was less than ideal, but it turned out okay in the end. Praise the Lord. Um, but yeah, it's a fine line to walk. Make sure you get the right support. We did buy her sight unseen from the other side of the world. That side of things was fine. I'd do that again. That that even though to some people that might come across as being the greatest risk. Yeah, absolutely. There's risk involved, but we had a really good rapport with the prior owners, which is credit to them. We knew enough about boats to be dangerous, I guess, as far as what to look out for and what pieces needed to be right and which parts we could work through. And, you know, so we, we felt reasonably comfortable there. The, 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 the bit that we weren't stoked on was the process. Um, so yeah, but consult because each country is different you, you hit nail on head. uh large sums of money uh in a system that you don't know make sure you get it ready. yeah
2: exactly well did you guys make like a conditional offer based on i don't know the fact that you like the boat or it is that's promised or a survey or something or what was that sort of i guess that is the legal part of the contract you part of it
1: I'm going to, I'm going to give you a longer answer than, than perhaps you would like. I think you'll enjoy the journey. Uh, so it was April 2021, February through to April 2021 when we were doing this. And so that's pandemic ish still. There's still, you know, countries shut very much so. The South Pacific as a whole, other than Fiji was shut and we had sold out, sold Toria sight unseen to a buyer in Australia out of Fiji. Uh, By the way, the sale couldn't close in Fiji for a similar reason that I was referring to about Mexico earlier. You need to import it. So uh, the buyer couldn't come out to view it and we couldn't sell it, but we were like, we wanted to sell it, he wanted to buy it. So we made it happen and ultimately we went, okay, we will deliver her to Australia. That in and of itself at the time was a risk because Australia may not have let us go again because there was yeah, Australian residents were unable to leave the, the country of Australia. However, because we had been out of Australia more than we had been in Australia, we fitted a, a, a description that was ordinarily resident. Uh, and therefore we could leave again, but you know, we were thinking, how the, how the heck are we going to get from Fiji, sail to Australia, catch a plane from Australia to New Zealand, fly up to the States and then cross a land border into Mexico to actually like touch this boat that we have a contract on being happy days when there's so many officials and unknowns as to border restrictions and closures and uh, you know tests and all that stuff that was in that season of everybody's life we were like there's a risk that we might not actually get there you know despite survey being good and you know sea trial being fine we were like well, we might not actually physically be able to take position so that was a a, a risk that we would manage to navigate and it was just one day at a time one step at a time as well but the way that we did the contract was, I want to try and get this right. We, we, we put a deposit down. Absolutely. You know, put our money where our mouth was. We're dealing with the, the owner, with the owners pretty much directly. And then we just had a, an agent in the US, um, facilitate our agreement, which worked really well, um, at that point. Uh, but the, the key to the, the contract was we put a clause in there that we would close only once we had seen the vessel in the flesh. So in other words, if we couldn't get there in the flesh, it would have fallen over, which would have been an interesting one. But that was sort of like the best we could come up with based on what we had to work with. But that's how we did it, um, to try and negate that risk. Uh, I, I think as well... Um, we made it just to give the buyer, sorry, the seller some, some form of comfort. We made it a, a, a non-refundable deposit, okay? So, if we hadn't have got there, we would have said bye-bye to our deposit. So, it was in our best interest to do everything that we could to get there. So, that's how the contract worked.
2: Right, yeah, exactly. And, I'm yeah, that whole pandemic thing, adding in multiple countries, what a time to buy a boat.
1: Yeah, It all worked but out. Got it, got, got it done got it done. Where where where, where it became, um, where the frustrating part was, was in Australia, which was our only experience, is you go, I want to sell a boat and you either put an ad online yourself or most people would go through a broker and the broker facilitates the agreement and the contract between the seller and the buyer and uh, you would use their trust account, the broker's trust account that, that you'd put the deposit into and, and ultimately that broker is the communicating party between both buyer and seller. And that's it and it works, right? <laughs> it's not like that in the States. There's terms that I can't even remember that um, were part of part of the, the, the process. Oh, first of all, heads up, if you're buying a US flagged vessel, and you want to reflag it to the country that you're from? Step one: cancel USCG registration. That takes like six to eight weeks. Well, you—I didn't even know what USCG was. US Coast Guard. That seems ridiculous to some people listening. To this to us, we didn't know what that acronym was until we started to get into that world. All right? Um, we have AMSA in Australia, so you know it's different. But yeah, and and so so the process of actually. You know, we we turned up, we went, we're here, we've made it, yes! You know, we can see our new home sitting on the hard in a dusty Penasco boatyard, but we were like keen to rip in. And then we stayed in a plethora of small Mexican condos for about another six to eight weeks going, why aren't we on board yet? Take our money, we're here, you know, like have the money. And it just took so long to go through the system of the U.S. that and that's where the frustration was. And I can't, as as I'm telling you this, I can't even pinpoint what the slow part was other than the poor agent would have been sick of hearing from me. Um, You know, (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) we're living out of suitcases. And we really, and it's like, it's like it's right there in front of us. We're putting the hard work to get there. We're keen to roll up the sleeves and get her into the water. And and we would just had this massive pushing of paws. So yeah, that was, that was where the frustration came through, came from in the end. And I think it was largely to do with, um, the USCG. Cancelates. And can
2: you not use it while it's active if you're not American? Is there something like that that you cannot take yeah, out of the water?
1: You can. We well, ended up having a captain's letter of sorts, but then you know it's just you, then enter enter gray area um, again because you're in you know foreign yeah, waters, Australia, um, in
2: Mexico, on a US boat, just like <laughs> a lot more.
1: All <laughs> right. Were we, were we the previous name of the vessel? Are we the new name of the vessel? We were in this no-man's land for quite some time.
2: All right. Yeah, of course. Well, you made it out of there, and you made it through several countries since. Uh, which is all on the YouTube um, channel as well, which is great. And you're right now in Canada. And I've, as I say in this, I realized that I think you're the first people I've talked to who are actually on the East coast of Canada. So tell me how is sailing on the Eastern coast of Canada? Have you had a chance to explore around a bit or mostly the Halifax area?
1: How we've been poking around yeah, the the Nova Scotian East Coast, so we have really, really enjoyed it. We came here via Maine, which is. Somewhat similar from a latitude perspective, and and or and all, and, all, and also from a sailing point of view as well. Minus thousands and thousands and thousands of lobster pots. So when we first sailed into Nova into, into Canada into Nova Scotia, we just had this massive sigh of relief because we had been dealing with this additional dimension of lobster pots for a number of weeks leading up to that, all all throughout Maine, which is beautiful. As well. It's just when you're on a catamaran with sail drives. Well, if you've been to Maine, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody described it to us as taking a bag of Skittles and just tossing them into the ocean, uh, such as the lobster pots. And we went, Oh, really? It can't be that bad. No, it is. It is that bad. Um, (laughs) horrendous. Uh, so, uh, but, but, you know, so when we arrived to Canada, uh, we first of all went, Oh my goodness, we can actually use things like the autopilot, uh, and actually take in the surrounds of where we are, and and that's been beautiful. So as far as sailing here, it's totally underrated. I know it might be a reasonably short uh, season, but it reminds us of the Bay of Islands in New Zealand, except it's probably a bit bigger, particularly around that Mahone Bay area. Uh, There's beautiful little towns like um, Chester and Lunenburg, and I'm sure I'm nailing the pronunciation. And even Halifax, the big smoke in and of itself, like we're on the dock here and, and you can pull in right into the heart of Halifax and it doesn't cost you anything to stay here during the day, It's which is very unique compared to other parts of the world we've sailed to where you just can't do that. In fact, you're lucky to find a spot for your dinghy. Um, so that's, that's really cool. People here are amazing. We've had met some, some great folks. And just feeling yeah, really blessed to be here. Yeah, Yeah,
2: it is a great place to explore. I've done some land based exploring in Nova Scotia and actually in August I went sailing in Maine on a trimaran and I can hundred percent agree on those lobster pots. There are so many of them. I don't know there's no rhyme or reason where why they're everywhere. There's no pathways nowhere. There's just everywhere, and I'm kind of grateful that I got to experience that quite early on in my sailing journey because I think as an idea that would be really intimidating to me. But now that I've been there, like it's not that bad. You can you know just weave around them. But yeah, there's a lot. But that's yeah, it's it's not that relaxing uh, necessarily, and definitely no
1: autopilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we had we had one day where we sailed to a schedule, which you should never do. Um, And it wasn't a big sail. It was like 40 miles. But it was through the beautiful islands that uh, make Maine what it is. However, it was in a heavy fog laden <laughs> laden with <laughs> laden with lobster pots so we had three people up on the bows for however long it took us to do the 40 miles thankfully there was a good wind and we could sail it so we eliminated the risk of tangling them in our props but uh yeah we we'll, we won't forget that day in in a rush
2: Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing that uh, on your YouTube channel later on. But uh, speaking of which, where can we follow and where can listeners follow your adventure online?
1: We are Sailing With Six. I say to people, just remember, we've got four kids. So, there's six of us, Sailing With Six, uh, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook yeah jump on and have a laugh
2: perfect i will link it in the description as well so people get go have a look uh, at your adventures and follow along but chris thank you so much for sharing all this uh, these stories and your advice and experiences uh, with us today
1: oh it's been amazing thank you for your time and uh, hopefully there's a couple of nuggets that fall out of there for somebody that'd be great the whole idea is to try and encourage and empower people to uh, think outside of their box so it's been awesome thank you
2: I hope you got value and inspiration out of this episode. Chris was an awesome guest and there are some extra bits on Patreon from this interview as we did chat for quite a while. Next week, we are headed for new adventures, so stay tuned for what's in store next week and bye for now.